Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we come out of one election cycle and head into another. And boy, Norm, today we we have, this is it. This is, uh, I like to think of uh, uh, sports analogies. This is our, you know, leading up into the World Cup finals. This is our like NBA semifinals. This is, this is like every analogy for like the game that is afoot before the championship showdown. Um, in some levels. And what are we talking about? The the game in Washington, D.C., the death ceiling, which is something you and I have been talking about, I feel like, um, pretty consistently and maybe to the chagrin of many listeners. But Norm, this is it. We're here. We, we actually had some action on the debt ceiling from the House. And we've already had Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell saying that they'll keep Senate, the Senate to uh, bring them in to work over the weekend. What a shock that somebody has to work over the weekend. But They'll bring the Senate in over the weekend to make sure that we do not default on June 5th, as Janet Yellen has warned us about, and as many Republicans have pointed out, is fake news. But nevertheless, here we are. Norm, like, and maybe I'll before you kind of give your um, commentator and state of the play, as we like to describe it, uh, let's catch up listeners. House passed a bill to suspend the debt ceiling for two years, allowing for the Treasury to remember what the debt ceiling is for, our, our, our amazing listeners, to borrow money to prevent the default. Um, more, if I look at the tally correctly, more Democrats than De- Republicans rallied to pass the measure, 165 Democrats, 149 Republicans voting in favor. Final vote came to 314 to 117. 71 Republicans, 46 Democrats opposed the bill goes to the Senate now. And I think there's so much telling about not only what's in the debt ceiling, um, kind of what passed in the House, uh, and then also how uh, the Republican and the far right uh, have opposed the measures. Norm, what's I like, I like for you to describe where we are, you know, the sports analogy of your choosing, if you, if you like, of kind of where we are in this, um, what I believe Chip Roy called a turd sandwich, uh, where we are in this and and your takeaways from what's happened so far. Uh, I'm just glad that uh, Chip Roy didn't call it a shit sandwich, uh, that he chose a uh, term that he knew could get on cable news. That is true. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> um, I didn't even think about that. He did that yeah. on purpose. Yeah, I like that. Uh, he did. Definitely did it on purpose. Uh, you know, uh, I was a little surprised that there were more Democrats than Republicans who voted for this. But it's a measure of uh, the skill with which the White House handled all of this. And we know along the way, uh, I heard from, and I'm sure you did, uh, from many House Democrats who were increasingly pissed at Biden and the White House out of a feeling that they were being shut out of these negotiations, which indeed they largely were. But there was a method to that uh, strategy on the part of the White House. Uh, and it was an understanding that the best way for them to come up with some sort of reasonable deal was to limit the number of people who were in the room doing the negotiating, but also an understanding that if the House Democrats were there, it was going to be harder for the House Republican negotiators to come up with anything that would even get acceptance by a majority of them. So they handled it well. And what we know is that after the deal was announced, and even then there were plenty of House Democrats furious because McCarthy and the Republicans were out there describing the deal and the White House was largely silent. And then they worked another weekend of, uh, of uh, work for people. Um, all the people in the White House, uh, Shalanda Young uh, and Louisa Terrell, the head of uh, congressional affairs, Steve Reschetti and others, were doing one-on-one -on -one conversations, lengthy ones, with large numbers of House Democrats to let them know what was in the deal. And I think what we saw from this was, if we're asking who won and who lost, uh, you know, at one level, we all lose because we have another instance of a stupid thing, the debt ceiling, which only exists in one other country, Denmark, um, being used as a hostage. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that more Democrats voted for this than Republicans is clear evidence that Biden won more than uh, he lost. And I'll give some credit to McCarthy that he was able to pull this off and manage even losing the Freedom Caucus to probably hang on to his speakership. But the fact is that uh, even the provisions that are distasteful, like the work requirements in uh, SNAP and food stamps, the uh, Congressional Budget Office has made it clear that it's actually going to result in more spending on the program that some people will be hurt, but more people are going to be eligible for this. So they did a masterful job here of pulling this together and limiting the damage. And at least we get this done through the election. And while I suspect we're likely to have more uh, headaches in October, I think we're still more likely than not to see a shutdown, that we have this, you know, we'll have the numbers set for the individual programs. But you can be sure that the Freedom Caucus people on the Appropriations Committee are going to try and do their own version of a turd sandwich in, uh, you know, allocating money in ways that the Senate will not appreciate. And, you know, we may end up with more drama, but we avoided the worst case. And uh, I think given everything, you've got to give an enormous amount of credit both to Biden and the people he had negotiating this for pulling this off with minimal damage. And the fact is, Kavita, that 
the deal they came up with is very likely the same deal that would have occurred if we'd gotten a clean debt ceiling increase and then we had to negotiate these things through the appropriations and budget process. That's right. So we were going to see some of the same pain emerge otherwise. And while I know that many progressive Democrats, and I know that Jeff Merkley of Oregon has already announced that because of this uh, Appalachian pipeline, gas pipeline, he's going to vote no. But the fact is, if you're looking at the trade-off, one pipeline in return for protecting all of the major clean energy uh, priorities of the administration is a pretty damn good deal. Yeah, let's let's talk about the deal, if you don't mind, because, um, of course, my uh, nerdy eyes raced to the Congressional Budget Office's analysis of the package, which came out today as we're recording this pod. Um, the Congressional Budget Office's analysis of the package came out several days ago, Tuesday evening. And let, let's just talk about it, because this is exactly what triggered, I think, a lot of the um, you know, some of the House Democrats and many Republicans, and then not just Merkley, obviously, <laughs> my good friend Bernie Sanders, who really just hates all provisions of any kind that he didn't create, also said he would have voted against it. And I had a Democrat staffer kind of say, can you believe Bernie? And I said, I totally expected this. Like the Merkley thing, I didn't call, I, I didn't expect. The Sanders one, I did call. But let's just talk about what's in it just very briefly. Um, and this is according, again, uh, for those who kind of uh, understand the CBO, it's it's our source of truth. Even if we disagree with what the CBO says, it is what anybody who is a legislative staffer, um, a senator, a House member, like y- you don't really have a choice. It's it, In a way, it's the equivalent of like an actuary's analysis of a situation because you can't really dispute when CBO says this will save X amount of money or not save this amount of money. Um, that's really how like legislation then gets kind of attached to the dollar figures. So the CBO um, earlier in the week basically announced that uh, the debt ceiling bill would reduce budget deficits by 1.5 trillion over a decade, um, and and under the deal, kind of dec- discretionary spending would decrease discretionary spending. We can talk about what that is. 1.3 trillion over the decade, and mandatory spending cut by 10 billion. Revenues cut by would decrease by two billion, and it had one area that I just want to highlight that became what I had immediately said: this needs to like McCarthy needs to. This is, and I am going to give like my very one infrequent hat tip to Kevin McCarthy because like I think he's a savvy DC player and knew that like with the score out and what CBO said, he had a window that was this big to try to get this package done. And for those who are listening to this on audio, my hands are squeezed together. That's how big this narrow window is. And it the CBO scored um, kind of the area around work requirement provisions in the package and that it would boost enrollment in the food stamps program by 78,000 people in an average month month when fully implemented and increased spending by $2.1 billion over the decade. Let me say this again. The work requirements that the House Republicans wanted so badly to have would actually boost enrollment into the the program to help people get food assistance by 78,000 people in an average month and increase spending by $2.1 billion over the decade. It also calls for increasing the upper age limit of adults to the existing work requirement from the age of 50 to set to 55, but veterans, homeless, foster youth, former foster youth would all be exempt. House Republicans were incredibly adamant about these work requirements in these safety net programs. 
um, which they said their narrative was that it would lead to less dependency on government aid. But as the Congressional Budget Office saw that, lo and behold, their work requirements provisions would do exactly what we suspected as Democrats that they would do, which would lead to more people needing social assistance. Why? Because a work requirement provision doesn't actually mean that people get meaningful work, unlike the narrative that is out there. So I, uh, the reason I mention this is because I think it points to what you describe as a win for Biden. I know that maybe we can kind of talk through briefly, Norm, your take on who are the winners and losers. I am going to make some like really bad assumptions here that I don't care who says no to it right now. This is going to pass the Senate. Um, Schumer and McConnell are brilliant at this. And I can guarantee you that they've got the votes kind of sidelined and they know how to do it. And so when once it passed the House, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. I don't know when it'll get done, but it'll get done. Um, but tell me, Norm, one, your assessment on the policy. Did I miss some things? I know we, we I glossed over. There's some other things in here like funding for the IRS and this and that. And um, you know, not really decreasing defense spending, et cetera. But I think the work requirements were where I thought McCarthy was going to get a bit of a sticky widget and had to get this package through quickly. So who were in your mind, any additional policy things you want to point out? And then number two, who are the winners and losers of this? So one larger point, Kavita, which is the idea that this is being, that this was being done, the use of the debt ceiling to really reduce the debt is of course nonsense. <laughs> yeah. we know that's a little what a small little thing, Norm. It's not yeah. actually to do anything about the debt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what a little thing you're bringing up. <laughs> first, we know that, of course, Republicans uh, made it very clear that the one thing they would not do is accept a dime in tax increases of any sort. But what we also know is that cutting money from the IRS means that you are making it less likely that you can capture tax cheats. This is not adding taxes. It's making people uh, pay what they owe instead of cheating on their taxes. So this had nothing to do with uh, reducing the debt. Work requirements are simply a punitive measure and we know from past experience where we've had these work requirements in states like Arkansas that they backfire. They don't do anything to provide uh, more uh, integrity with people who are on food stamps. In fact, they have the opposite effect. They're simply, uh, we're going to stick it to poor people. Uh, and here, the way in which the administration was able to get around this demand, an understanding that McCarthy was going to have to have something in the work requirement area to mollify a, a significant portion of his caucus, uh, that the administration was able to turn this around and not only limit the damage, but actually expand the program. You got to say, uh, my guess is that Shalanda Young had as much to do with that as anybody. She knows this stuff. Um, you know, that is a huge, huge uh, plus here. Um, the other thing is you're absolutely right about the Senate. And what we know is that of the Democrats who voted no, there were, I'll bet at least half of them, votes that Hakeem Jeffries had in reserve, just in case this proved to be closer than uh, anticipated. It was not only not close, it was an absolute blowout. And that 
does more than guarantee that the Senate will uh, approve this. And frankly, the Democrats who are going to vote no are also being given a pass. Um, you know, it's it's clear that we're going to have a significant number of Republican no's. And the reason they're going to be in over the weekend is because the uh, worst of the House, uh, Senate Republicans, I'll start with Mike Lee, are going to try and throw up every procedural roadblock that they can. Um, but it's performative and they'll manage to get this done. Uh, and my guess is that the the Senate, uh, you know, the House is three to one uh, in terms of favoring this uh, package. I think the Senate's going to be somewhere in, in that same category. Uh, it doesn't matter. They're just going to be well over the 60 mark. And I will, you know, going back to what you said earlier, uh, nobody's been a harsher critic of uh, Kevin McCarthy than uh, I have been. And I will continue to be a harsh critic, uh, just going back to the fact that he wanted to punish Adam Kinsinger and, and Liz Cheney while uh, rewarding the uh, worst and most insurrectionist elements of his own uh, conference. Um, but give him credit. He pulled this off and managed to get the bulk of his caucus to go for it. And if any of those Freedom Caucus people decide to use the lever of one of them demanding a vote on the speaker, they're going to lose. And uh, and that will humiliate them. So it wouldn't surprise me that we get no challenge to McCarthy, that they'll vent at him in their conference. Um, but he proved to be more savvy in pulling this off. Uh, than I would have imagined or a whole lot of other McCarthy watchers would have imagined. It's true. And I think that um, this is a very incredible, like, look, I, I, I say this so rarely, but this is like when Washington kind of works. And to your point, to be fair, it did not work, you know, from the beginning on this, including the fact that it did not deal with the actual debt ceiling. It was just a bunch of political horse trading. But considering what we were cratering towards, and you and I had been talking now about um, what we thought was a much higher likelihood that they would kick the can down the curb just for a shorter period of time. You could argue this is just a two-year kick down the curb, and that's accurate. But I had kind of thought, listen, they're not going to get to yes by June 5th, and then we're just going to see some temporary patch and we'll see some of the real horse trading kind of, you know, work its way as we get closer to an election cycle, then people will just cut deals because they need to, including, by the way, you know, Joe Biden, right, which is what I thought was likely to happen. The fact that this came together when it did and it is going to pass the Senate and uh, how much the Senate, you know, puts up some like posturing that'll just make the weekend more miserable for some senators. But that's a, that's it is what it is. There's one other point, but before we, uh, I just one larger point to make. If uh, the way this uh, process works, after a couple of years, if Biden is reelected, he's going to have a lot more leeway to get more spending for programs that matter in that discretionary pot, programs for the poor, uh, programs for veterans and the like. And he has the ability to suspend the pay-as-you-go features here. The IRS money, that's a big amount, but he can move some more money around and actually still manage to uh, be have the IRS be more responsive to average people, but to do more audits and to rein in some of the billionaires who've been getting away with murder in the tax code. 
And then just finally, you know, those uh, ginormous Trump tax cuts that drained the uh, debt so much. Because of the way the budget process works, they had to have them all expire in 2025, 2026. And that will give, if Biden is reelected, a lot more ability to cut a deal. Remember that uh, Barack Obama, when uh, those earlier uh, Bush tax expired, I think he probably could have done more, but he was able to keep, uh, to bring back more revenue, uh, some of it from the rich and corporations. Biden's going to have that ability as well. Over the long term, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, whatever the CBO says about what this will do to the debt, um, assuming that everything works through a decade, when actually, after a couple of years, there's a lot more leeway, um, Biden and Democrats come out really much better over the long run if, and that's a big if, they win some elections down the road, including especially the presidency in 2024. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you put the time perspective in place because of the two years and kind of where this is, again, like a, a win for Biden. And and I would say like to the critics, which I was one of them around like, you know, conceding on certain things or giving up and clawing back funds for social programs. Um, I, I'll be honest, reading the CBO score made me feel better. Just blunt, bluntly stated, I thought, aha, there's some reassurance here that very much in fact, what we've been saying as policy analysts all along is that work requirements never accomplish kind of the headlines that whether it's conservatives, um, you know, or kind of the hard right have always spouted around, you know, putting into place these restrictions. And and I think that it also fools and deceives Americans. But what, what unfortunately has happened around work requirements specifically is that it's painted this very um, incorrect picture of like kind of people who are, quote, lazy and don't seek work when what we're really lacking in the United States is a structure by which even having a full-time job norm can give you uh, any sort of living wage. That's really, I mean, and, and actually, by the way, this is exactly what's at the heart of many of the kind of union kind of bargaining as well as non or desire to union to, to uh, unionize in places like Amazon and other work settings. It's really this, it's the heart of like having a living wage where you can actually you know, have a family that you can support on even two incomes, which is not possible in many parts, in many jobs in the United States, many parts. So let's, let me, let's try, we're going to move, uh, we want to close out this part of our conversation and uh, it tackle the audio recordings and some of what's emerged on, on uh, Donald Trump in our members only section. But let me close by asking Norm for your kind of, uh, you laid out what you kind of say might happen, you know, and how this puts Biden in a much better position for what we really need to do on the debt ceiling. What um, a question for me would be for you, like, so then let's walk through what else is potentially on the congressional calendar. What are some of the other big things that you would flag for like a discussion, anything on your radar, anything that we need to pay attention to? as we kind of head out of the debt ceiling crisis and head into another kind of uh, series of months where most legislators are just going to be jockeying for political power. Yeah. And I, you know, th this is the big deal, but uh, going back to what we were saying earlier, just keep your eye on what now will be the appropriations process. I do not expect 
um, a whole lot more. There may be some more jockeying around the border and uh, and immigration in terms of what Congress can do. I don't expect a lot more uh, bipartisan legislating. The House will continue to posture. They may pass some things on a purely partisan basis, uh, but uh, it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. One other little thing to keep in mind is we have uh, one Republican uh, in the House who is going to be leaving early. And uh, remember, the Republican margin is four. Um, George Santos is still hanging on by a thread. Um, it'll take months for a special election for the House. Uh, and this is a member who has health pro- his uh, spouse has health problems. Um, so their margin will be down to three or maybe two. And their ability to actually pass legislation is going to be reduced. So what we're going to see is simply a lot more of the posturing through these faux hearings and oversight uh, and the like. Uh, But it's the appropriations process and heading towards a potential showdown at the end of September. That is the one thing that I'll be watching other than, you know, Jim Jordan and uh, uh, and Jim Comer and others doing these outrageous uh, hearings and trying to bludgeon Hunter Biden and the rest of the Biden administration. Yeah, I think that uh, appropriations is also like the people don't uh, people underestimate, like to your point, (laughs) you know, how much of this, like when legislation happens and then the actual job of allocating the very dollars that said legislation said that they would allocate and then kind of all the other um, mandatory spending and all the kind of budgets that are in what the president has requested, all of that kind of culminates to your point with um, the appropriators basically doing a yay or nay on these things. And, you know, in the old days, this is where so many like sweetheart deals would get cut and little Christmas tree ornaments would get put on the appropriations kind of committees posture. You know, they, but in, in this current environment, we'll see like what happens. So um, appropriations, I suspect um, something that's not necessarily on the congressional radar, but will just be on our listeners' radars will be, I'm still waiting for the um, more forceful show of, you know, Kamala Harris as the like defined running mate for Joe Biden. I'm hoping that emerges soon. Um, we're going to see some very high level, high profile state uh, White House, State Department kind of um dinners and and convenings around the prime minister of india coming to the united states in june and they're gonna you know we've got a half um uh, asian american vice president they're gonna be doing a lot of photo ops together and i suspect that this is gonna force some of that issue and then we have our own mike pence with his like race announcement and our are we we covered in our Chris Christie. Oh, God bless Chris Christie. So we're going to see on the national scale a pretty active summer, to say the least, which we fully expected uh, heading into an election cycle. But um, this is enough to give us uh, plenty to preview for the coming weeks. And just in case you thought it would be a sleepy summer in Washington, D.C., you were wrong. And so we're very, very excited. One more thing that we ought to highlight, Kavita, which is uh, in the Senate, of course, the big deal continues to be getting more judges approved. And we've had more under Biden at this point than any previous president. Um, there's still a lot of vacancies to deal with. We've had another area of remarkable success for him is changing the judiciary. 
more women, more women of color uh, moving in, more people with different life experiences, which makes a huge difference. But uh, I raise this in part because, of course, uh, critical to getting these judges confirmed is Dianne Feinstein. And what we've seen is that Democrats, many of whom were saying, this is embarrassing, she needs to resign now, are now saying, you know, we can't count on Mitch McConnell allowing any replacement coming in to fill that seat on the Judiciary Committee. We need to have Republican support to do that. So what you're seeing is Democrats who are now more willing to let Dianne Feinstein, who clearly is not uh, fully compass mentis and physically in pretty bad shape, but this, they're perfectly all right at this point with the staff wheeling her into the Judiciary Committee to cast the vote that enables them to move judges through uh, expeditiously. I can't tell you, and I, I will, will maybe in a future uh, pod, I can break down the um, now what's come to light, by the way, about some of the medical issues, because I can definitely speak to that with authority. Uh, and just it's it's troubling. And it's it speaks to again, it does not speak to a certain age, a certain this, a certain that it just speaks to um, it, it speaks to the lack of transparency in a way that is so disturbing for someone who represents, forget a senator, but just represents people, any elected official. I don't care if you're an elected official on a board of two people or, or you're doing what she's doing and elected to represent one of the largest you know, states in the world. And I think that, yeah, so we'll do that in a future pod. It's like too much for me. I get very upset about it and have gone back and forth with even some of her former staffers about how this is, this is just not this is just not what the spirit of the like constitution was for how we brought elected officials forward and, and our obligation to them, or uh, let me say it better, their obligation to us as Americans. It makes me very angry, but in, 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 in lieu of going on a rant about uh, what, what I now understand a bit more about our medical issues, um, we will leave it at the, we will leave it at right before the, uh, you know, kind of, uh, Olympics, the, any, any version medal ceremony, you know, you name it, the, uh, world cup, uh, trophy, the super bowl rings being handed out all of the above, because I am so relieved that we're at least not going to talk about the death ceiling that much longer. And that we will get to talk about some of the other issues that we touched on, uh, and continue on our, on our, I would say, nice uh, analysis of all the social issues that are going to be heading into the next set of elections. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Help us by subscribing and rating and reviewing this podcast and adding it to your favorite uh, social media feeds. If you like this episode, please become a member. Again, less than one of your customized lattes each month, and it gets you some access to our bonus segments. We're going to be talking about uh, our incredible, like, kind of constantly unfolding, as we suspected, uh, case against uh, the United States versus Donald Trump on many of what I think Joyce Vance, I think, aptly put it on MSNBC in one of the recent 48 hours of shows about Trump, that it's not if he's indicted, it's when. So uh, that's, I think, uh, an incredible an incredible statement about what's emerged on the evidence. And if you want access to those conversations, becoming a member will be uh, incredibly helpful for doing that. I want to thank our executive producer, Chris Cotmar, and Words Matters, a production of the DSR Network. 
We will hopefully see you in our next podcast, which should be in your feeds on June 8th. See you then.